Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. We're glad to have you here on the S2 Cognition Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, and today our esteemed guest is Dr. Elizabeth Kinziker. She received her bachelor's degree in psychology and biology from Harvard University and her PhD in neuroscience from MIT. She has published nearly 150 peer-reviewed papers and book chapters in effective and cognitive neuroscience and is currently the chair of psychology and neuroscience at Boston College. Her work has been cited over 21,000 times and she has authored some of the foundational work in understanding how effective and emotional states influence cognition. Together, we dive into the effects of emotional states and anxiety and the role they play in influencing speeded cognition. We also cover why some athletes succeed playing angry and why others succeed while playing with zen or at peace. For those that are new here, welcome. We are excited to have you today. And for those that are returning listeners, we always appreciate your support. To help us continue our growth, we ask that you subscribe, rate, and review our show. We hope you enjoy Dr. Elizabeth Kinziker. Dr. Kinziger, thanks so much for joining us. Brandon, before we get into our discussion today about cognition and um, how it's affected here, can you describe you know, your relationship that you have with Dr. Kinziger? Uh, sure. So I was uh, very fortunate to be uh, in Boston for my postdoctoral training, um, and I was a application guy, a, neuros- a clinical neuropsychologist who uh, happened to I uh, get very lucky and and hit the NIH lottery to do a, a postdoctoral fellowship uh, in cognitive neuroscience. And one of my mentors on that award was Dan Schachter, who Elizabeth was working in his lab. Uh, Elizabeth was one of those rock stars uh, and obviously continues to be a rock star in that lab. So learned a lot from her uh, during that time in Boston. Man, that's so cool. And, and Dr. Kinsaker, we've kind of gone into your background today. You know, we focus all on rapid speeded cognition. We're hoping like your discussion and your expertise can show us how those states are affected by emotion or regulation. So I think, Brandon, that's kind of where we want to start today. Is that right? Oh, yeah. That's a really interesting topic. I mean, we get asked all the time, Elizabeth, you know, how do psychological states or how do emotional states affect speeded cognition. I think we know a lot about how emotional states can affect just our everyday life, our everyday sorts of thinkings. I mean, as a clinical neuropsychologist, Scott and I are fully aware about how anxiety and depression can affect our ability to function just on everyday tasks. But when you think about things like you know, speeded target detection or, um, you know, sort of impulse control, motor impulsivity and things like that, Um, We get asked all the time, and it's one of those things where we get asked by sports psychologists who you would think, you know, could understand this, but I don't think the literature is really well understood about how these sort of unconscious sort of activity, brain activity, visual processing is affected in those. And I know that's a really big question to start with, but would love to just hear your, from what you're you're finding in your lab and your expertise, uh, how we might think about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I want to start just by noting that I think emotions have to be inherently intertwined with our cognitive abilities, with our motor abilities, because really at the most basic level, emotions exist to signal that there's something in the environment that is going to require us to act or require us to think. And often acting fast or, you know, 
thinking quickly, making a choice quickly is inherent in what emotions are signaling that we have to do. So I think in that broad level, there's like no question that our emotional state is going to um, help our ability to act quickly, to make a decision quickly, to figure out what out of all of the information that's in our environment right now do we need to be attending to and do we need to be focusing on? I think where the question gets a little murkier is, well, exactly what emotional states are best for that? Exactly what is our attention going to be drawn to? And that's where I think that the answer is sometimes a bit un unsatisfying and it's often it depends. So, you know, if if I am in a great mood, the things that attract my attention in the environment are probably going to be consistent, right? They're going to be the rewards in the environment, the awesome things I might be able to explore today. If I'm in a really bad mood, I'm not going to notice all those things. I'm going to instead be noticing all of the potential threats, all of the, you know, negative feedback I'm being given. All of all of that is going to be what's capturing my attention instead. So there's always this complex interaction between what my internal state is for other reasons and what is out in the world. And those two things are, are going to be linked. So that is really interesting. So is that a general principle that we're, when we're in a better mood, we tend to focus on the more rewarding, positive aspects of our environment? Um, and when we're in a negative mood, we tend to focus on all the potential threats, the, the negative consequences, because that alone, so confirm that I, I grasp that correctly, but that alone has serious implications for elite athletes because mood states can fluctuate within a game, within an inning, between games, uh, pregame. Uh, so did I hear that correctly? You did. So mood congruency is a really key principle where, uh, just as you rephrased it accurately, you know, we notice things that are aligned with the current mood that we're in, or at least it takes a higher threshold, a higher intensity for us to notice things that are misaligned, right? So it's not, you know, if I'm in a great mood and I'm in the forest and a, a snake is there, I'm going to notice the snake, right? But I might actually be a little bit slower to notice it than if I were already feeling vigilant, knowing that there were a lot of snakes and there might be one anywhere, right? So the threshold for noticing it is going to be higher when it's incongruent with our mood. Um, and in general, there's going to be that mood congruency tendency. Scott, I would assume that our our sports that that have risk reward, where you're understanding risk, um, that has to be a big player in that, right? Yeah, that's where my mind went too, because there's always trade offs, and there's always you know the potential for glory and the potential for catastrophe, <laughs> and it, when you play and you compete and and um, you know, we already know that there are individual differences in the way we appraise risk and the way we prioritize, you know, avoiding potential losses or negative outcomes versus prioritizing what it's going to take to pull this off, the glory, the reward. And so this adds another layer to that, that your, your emotional state also colors and influences those probably those computations. Is that what you'd say, you might say as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways we can think of our emotional state as a filter 
that is influencing what gets in at all and then kind of how we interpret what is getting through that filter. And so, yes, I think absolutely as those fluctuations are happening throughout a game, you know, what what you're noticing and what it's taking for you to shift from thinking about it as risk versus reward, um, you know, all of that is is going to be affected by probably what mood you walked into the game with. Wow. That's, uh, I mean, that's fascinating. Uh, I just really quickly did a, like a, a glance at the literature and noticed that there was, you know, when, when searching for things in our environment, negative mood states, actually, you're always looking for a threat. Is it too simplistic to think that perhaps a quarterback, as an example, rather than searching for a teammate, um, a negative state could actually have him searching for threats. They're t- searching for defenders that might take his attention away from what he's really supposed to be searching for. I mean, I think in some level there is a, a an accuracy to that statement that, you know, our attention is being drawn to these emotional stimuli. And sometimes that's exactly what we want to be attending to. And other times that's actually not the thing we want to be attending to. It's a distractor in the environment, right? Now, I think where things get a little murky is that we do have some limited control over what we're attending to in the environment as well. And so if we know that we have a goal state that says these are the people in the environment that it's critical that I'm attending to, um, you know, that can do a lot. Um, And so I think in a situation where we're talking about threats as, you know, players on a team, um, you know, I think that goal that we have that actually the critical people for me to be paying attention to are these other individuals, I think can do a lot of the work in terms of filtering. But um, again, the emotions are still going to be there and still certainly going to be, you know, coming into play. And certainly at the point where we're talking about, you know, a a more literal threat in that context where someone is running toward me and I may be in physical harm, right? At that point, right, my emotions are going to retake over what I'm orienting to, um, you know, versus other aspects. I mean, a lot of the filtering things makes a ton of sense. When you're thinking about milliseconds, though, on some of these professional football fields, I mean, or, you know, other soccer or whatnot, I mean, milliseconds matter. Um, And so even if it takes us off course a little bit, it's interesting. Are there things that we can do to help sort of, you know, as potentially a pregame ritual? Let's say you're a guy who you know you have a lot of like anxiety wrapped around performance. I mean, sports related anxiety, performance anxiety is a, you know, a pretty big thing. Are there things that we can do either, you know, during our weekly practice or pregame that can sort of ameliorate some of those issues or even do a, you know, Scott and I have batted around the idea of a cognitive warm up. Right. I mean, we do all these physical warm ups for our performances or a cognitive warm up, especially if you know you have a problem there. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I do think that there are some possibilities. So, you know, there I would I would think about it kind of in two ways. One is, um, you know, arousal, a kind of our you know general emotional state, the intensity of that state for most people, for most kind of simple tasks, there's an inverted U to that, right? There's some optimal level of arousal. And then if we get too low, too high, we're not able to be performing at that optimal level anymore. And so I think some of the interesting thought about what this cognitive warm up would look like first requires someone identifying 
what is my optimal arousal level? Because it's not going to be the same for every person. There's also realistically going to be some variability from day to day and over time within a person as well. But I think the the variability across people is what can be quite large. And so I think first someone needs to understand, you know, where am where is my optimal arousal level? And then you could imagine cognitive warm-ups that are really about either dialing that up or dialing that down depending on where the person is. So someone that is experiencing really high anxiety it may be that that's too much that day, right? And that that day, the warmups need to be about mindfulness and breathing exercises and getting that arousal down. There may be other times when actually the person feels like, actually, you know what, I'm too low in arousal today, right? And so those cognitive warmups really need to be about getting someone pumped up, getting someone excited. So I think at one level, it can just be about where are you in that arc of arousal and do you need to be ramped up? Do you need to be ramped down? And then I think the second part of that, you know, we already briefly mentioned that people are, um, you know, both good and bad at appraising emotions, good in the sense that they're very flexible and we can appraise them lots of ways, right? Bad in that we don't always know what we're feeling and it can be a little <laughs> arbitrary how we label that. But I think in some of these contexts we're talking about, that can be really powerful because it's a bit up to me, you know, to decide, am I nervous before giving a talk or am I really excited before giving a talk? And you know, am I a person that responds really well to being nervous or responds really well to being super excited? And I can kind of, you know, to some extent, that's a bit under my control. And I think there are many domains in, in athletics as well where that can be so true that, you know, for each person, they can figure out what is advantageous to me to be labeling how I'm feeling, right? Am I pumped up and ready to go? Am I, you know, angry that I didn't perform well the last time and I'm ready to go out there? You know, like what, what is it? Um, and then again, those cognitive warmups could be more about how that person is appraising those feelings to help them to optimize their performance. Yeah, that's, that is really interesting and insightful because we, we hear things like this in the sports world. There are athletes who seem to play at an optimal level when they are in a, a very fiery, almost sub-angry state. I mean, they're just intense and they're, 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 the juices are flowing um, versus athletes who per, feel like they perform better when they're in a very serene, calm, you know, some level of arousal because you need that to compete, but just very controlled, very calm. It sounded like you said those are the there's going to be individual differences in which yes. does that make sense to you that some people would be better to be in a little bit more of a, a fired up state and others would be better suited to to stay in that that kind of calm, relaxed kind of emotional state? Absolutely. There's a lot of work showing that there are these inter-individual differences in terms of what emotions people feel drive their best performance. And, you know, to be honest, I don't think there's enough data to say if that's just a self-fulfilling prophecy or if it really is something about emotions for different people. But, you know, to some extent, maybe that doesn't always matter, right? What matters is that someone is able to get themselves into the emotional state that they think is leading to their best work and that, you know, at least correlating wise right. it is. <laughs> um, 
And Maya Tamir um, has done some really beautiful work on this, showing that you know people are willing to feel pretty rotten emotions if they think it helps them to achieve something they want <laughs> to achieve. And so that gets to your point about anger, where she's shown exactly that that you know athletes who feel like being you know angry, especially before you know a type of event where you need to have some of that aggression and that competitive nature, um, you know they're very willing to actually you know think about you know past times when bad things have happened or you know bring to mind whatever they need to, to get themselves in that fired up, angry state. Whereas just as you were saying, others who may think that's not what helps me, what I need is a very, you know, clear headed, focused mindset. Again, they're willing to, you know, engage in exercises beforehand that will help them to, to derive that state. Reminds me of that scene from Waterboy where he envisioned uh, this, the former coach who was always yelling and picking on him as, uh, you know, as the face of the opponent. And that just leveled up his uh, intensity. You envision Waterboy, but I, I, my mind immediately went to Michael Jordan and how he used to make up stories and the poor soul oh, yeah. who has to guard him. It's like, <laughs> oh, that story's not even true, but I'm dropping 71 on you tonight. <laughs> and it's like, that guy can't do anything. He's like, this story's not even real. Dr. Kinsaker, a question I have is, you know, with, with the states that these players have to play in, right? The, as the levels go up and they get higher and playoffs come or a conference tournament comes and the stakes are a little bit more important. Can you describe that arousal state and does environment and, you know, the risk of not being able to play anymore? Like, Hey, this is it. We lose, we go home. We win, we keep playing. What, what does the environment have to do with that arousal state as well? Yeah, I think that can play a lot, right? So it can be that. And I think that's why someone has to be so vigilant about where are they in that arousal scale, right? Because it could be that someone who typically needs to get pumped up before a game in that very high stakes situation, that context may be doing all the work for them, right? That may actually be a day where actually what they now need is, you know, ramping down, right? So I absolutely think that those sorts of contextual features and also just what's happening for the person, you know, if you really haven't slept well over the last couple of nights, where you wake up on that arousal scale may be different. You may need something different before you go out and, you know, to perform your best. Um, so I think there are going to be both internal and external factors that are going to influence that. States like sleep deprivation and things like that, you know, we've gotten into this sort of sphere about optimal performance and how it affects cognition and um, what do we what do we expect, right? I mean, what's the norm here and can we expect people to always be in their optimal state? Is it a fair assumption for us <laughs> that we want to try to replicate what it's going to be like on game day. So when we're working with athletes or assessing athletes, they're not always going to be in their optimal state, right? Some of them are going to be tired. Some of them are going to be... So these lab-based performances, and and you know what we do. Uh, I mean, we've taken these tests right out of the lab. How do you feel about the transfer of uh, assessing cognitive performance like we do and making assumptions about performance on the field, right? I mean, that's the missing piece that I think that we get hammered for a lot is, well, you can't replicate game day, right? You can't replicate how this person is going to perform on game day or how he or she is going to process information on game day. And my retort is always, well, it's the best tools we have from, from, from science. Like this is the best we can do, but we have to make some general assumptions. Can you give us some, maybe some guideposts or some thoughts about, Hey, these kinds of things aren't going to get swayed so much by game day or whatever, or tell us the honest truth. Like, Hey, there can be a lot of variability in performance by a particular game or a particular day. 
I think my answer is somewhere in between those two extremes. So, you know, I absolutely there's going to be variability. And as you were just saying, I mean, I mean, someone's not maybe going to be sleeping as well. There are going to be so many other um, distracting thoughts in their head. Right. I mean, there are going to be lots of things that are happening on game day that are going to be challenging to fully replicate in a laboratory setting. And I think on that kind of more negative note, you know, I think it also, we know that when we're not sleeping well, our emotions get really dysregulated and it gets harder to control them. And so I think to the extent that what we're talking about here is how we can, you know, like use our emotions to our benefit, that all assumes that we have a a pretty good ability to regulate our emotions and to be experiencing the emotions that are optimized. But again, on game day with everything else that's going on, that's going to be harder. I don't think there's anything different about the principles, but I think the ability to execute them is going to be harder on game day. Having said that, I think on the more positive side, we also know that you know we get better at almost everything with practice. And I think a lot of what we're talking about today, especially things like having a cognitive warm up and figuring out what you're optimal emotional state is and thinking about ways to get you there, you know, those are all things that are only going to get easier the more that you do it. And so while it certainly, you know, game day is the hardest test of your ability to do that, um, I don't think it would be true to say that you can't do it that day or you can't at least get closer on that day. Um, you know, so so I think that there's definitely going to be a tie between what you're able to show people how to do in the lab and how they're responding in the lab and how they're responding on game day. That is really an an interesting and important topic as we move forward with co- cognition and sports. You know, we're assessing their capacities in optimal st- settings, right? So the, we tell them to prepare like they're preparing for a game before they take the evaluation. We're pushing them to the to the the cliff or the edge of human performance to see how far we can push them. And we know there's individual differences in in the proficiency of these cognitive systems. But what's interesting is there are individual differences in the effects of your emotional state and your arousal states, as you've noted. And so we know in general, so I'll just pick a system that's near and dear to my heart, the impulse control systems and inhibition systems. We know that there are individual differences in your ability to control impulses. And we know that under certain kinds of pressure, everybody's impulse control suffers. But that degree of suffering is is kind of a missing piece in sports. So how much does stress and emotional dysregulation impact your impulse control? Now, we make some broad claims that, look, if your impulse control is, is low to begin with, stress is is not going to certainly help you, but there could be someone with a really high degree of impulse control that is absolutely devastated by emotion or stress or anxiety. And so it's not enough. I mean, we're starting with getting your capacities, which has been really insightful and informative. Turns out these cognitive tasks and these cognitive methodologies actually link to real world performance in these, these dynamic environments. But the degradation and the enhancement that comes with various emotional states is certainly a piece that that we need to to unlock and uncover. Yeah, I think really to sort of piggyback off of that, and I don't know, Elizabeth, if you've thought much about this. I'm, I'm sure you have. When when things get hit hit in the media, you know, when when Scott talks about impulse control, um, we you know we work with law enforcement, we work with military, and there's an example of 
you know, you can have a phenomenal impulse control system, uh, but these law enforcement agents, when they fear that their life is going to be taken, it it redirects uh, the way we perform in ways that we probably can't predict. Um, you know, same thing in the military theater. You know, you can characterize somebody's motor control, their visual processing. You throw them into combat, uh, and it's a different. Have Have you guys in your lab thought about? You know, these sort of really quick emotional states, like these flashes of. You know, I know, I know, we've done some stuff in PTSD and things like that, but like in the real world, operating uh, these operators, we call them. How have you guys thought about that? Yeah, I mean, so what we've certainly seen in the lab is that emotional state particularly affects how we interpret ambiguous stimuli. And to me, that's one of the things that becomes so relevant when we're talking about law enforcement and military, right? You know, is something a threat or not? Um, And how quickly do we decide that it's a threat? And based off of what information do we decide that's a threat? And so, um, you know, in in my lab and in many others, it's, it's pretty easy to replicate a finding where if you put someone under any type of stress, and we're often doing fairly mild things, you know, this is someone that's under the threat of getting a, a mild shock in a little bit, or they're give, you know, they've just given a public speech, you know, these are these are lower intensity stressors. And even with that, it's enough that if you quickly show someone a hairdryer, they don't see it as a hairdryer, they see it as a gun, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, you can do these sorts of ambiguities, show them a twig, and they think it's a snake, right? Um, and people are are quick, but they're also confident, right? People don't recognize that they're making mistakes. And that's, you know, again, a combination of the visual system, um, but also that there isn't that type of attentional override that we often give in other situations where we take that second look and then we say, oh, never mind, it's just a twig. Oh, never mind, it's a hairdryer, right? When we're under this, these high stress emotional states, um, we're not taking that second look. We're making a decision based off of the first impression that we got. Wow. Is there an element, and this may be very naive of me, but is there an element that these perhaps police officers or law enforcement could do perceptual training to make their systems more efficient, recognizing the most common distractors? So like we commonly hear this guy was pulling for his cell phone uh, and the police officer thought it was a gun. Is there elements of perceptual training that may make us more efficient under these uh, or more resistant uh, if you will, under these? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. And, you know, it might be plausible for something like a cell phone where there are really different sorts of visual features. And you might imagine a type of training that I, I'm, I'm just guessing here, but, you know, a type of training that's really teaching people to be alert to whether or not there's a specific feature or set of features that would be true of a cell phone. You know, the, I, I don't know what that would be the way someone's holding it or just something about the shape of it that could provide that type of override. You know, I think for things where the shape is very similar, we're really up against the way that our neural systems are set up, which is that there is this very fast path of just very low level visual information that gets to the amygdala before the higher resolution visual information. And so there, I think, you know, for the twig versus snake example, that's really just that the first thing the, 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 the visual system gets to the amygdala is something that could be either, right? It actually isn't well enough resolved to distinguish the two. And so for something like that, I think the training, you know, if you're talking about someone pulling something that is more similar in shape to a gun, um, you know, I think there the training would really have to be more truly cognitive training about the need to take the second look hmm. to wait 
you know, whatever it would be to make sure that you have time for the visual system to do its job and to get that higher resolution information processed and not just that lower resolution information. And therein lies the dilemma. To Brandon's point earlier, milliseconds matter. Exactly. And in life and death situation, these are, these are arguably some of the most challenging and difficult situations that humans face and where time matters, life and death is at stake. So there's no easy solutions, but, uh, you know, at least trying and attempting to train so that your brain is afforded a few tens of milliseconds, better, you know, processing accuracy. Those can, those can be the difference. I have another question. Um, So we've been talking about the direction of emotion influencing cognition how does individual how do individual differences in cognition though potentially contribute to the high performer in terms of their emotional state because if you have some cognitive processing uh, challenges or disadvantages i imagine that that can sometimes lead to the anxiety and the emotional dysregulation because of the processing demands uh, of the situation. What about that direction? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely, you know, the more challenging that we find a task, the more that's going to be causing us to be experiencing higher arousal and anxiety and and stress. And so, again, I think that's something we have to be very aware of is we might have someone who can tolerate very high levels of arousal and still have very good performance. And yet there may be certain types of tasks that where the task itself is going to push them past where they want to be. So that could be a really interesting example where you might want someone to actually be walking into something lower than their optimized arousal level, knowing that the task is actually going to push that arousal yeah. level up as they, you know, keep trying at it or something, you know, something like that. You know, so I think it, this all highlights how much interplay there is between these different factors. And one other element that our prior conversation reminded me of, but is also relevant here, is that our emotional state also affects our time perception. And in many cases, especially with, you know, threat, you know, experiences that are causing threat, time really seems to slow down. And I think that can be so relevant in terms of how we're judging the speed of our own actions and in terms of how we're feeling about our performance. So we can have, um, you know, in, in this current topic that we're talking about, right? Someone who maybe is actually performing better than they think, but under high stress, everything feels sluggish, even if objectively it isn't. And so helping people to understand what's happening to their time perception, I think can also be critical. And that also ties into the prior conversation where I think so much of what can happen under high stress is we think we've had plenty of time to look and to resolve what something is, not recognizing that it's just our perception of time that's slowed. And actually we've only had, you know, a split second um, before we've made some decision. It's interesting. You talk about the the time uh, slowing down and immediately, guys, my, my mind went to the zone and how athletes are able to get in the zone and you hear them in the interviews, right? Uh, I think of, you know, the the couple examples I, I was thinking about was Clay scoring like 38 and a quarter. It's like, man, he just couldn't miss. Or uh, LeBron doing the same thing against Boston in, in the 2012 playoffs. But you hear these athletes after they perform, and it's almost like the game was slow to them. Uh, can can you describe what emotion, because we've, we've covered a lot of the cognitive states that these athletes are in during that time. Uh, what does the emotional state with the time perception of actually slowing it down how does an athlete gear or use that to their advantage to get in the zone? 
Yeah. Well, you know, at least one of the hypotheses about why it seems like time slows is actually because of what emotion is doing for us in the visual domain and mm. the motor domain. You know, it's making all of that more efficient. And that's kind of what we use to figure out the passage of time, right, is how much information have I seen? How many movements have I been able to make? Right. And so it's almost that the, the time slowing is almost like the side effect, I would say, of those other changes that are happening in those domains. Um, but absolutely, it it feels as if it is the time slowing that is allowing someone to make all of these additional decisions and all of these additional movements and to have time to really interpret what's going on. Um, but of course, presumably the causality is really in the other direction, that it's because they're doing all of this so quickly that it feels to them like they must have had more time. Golly. So the is, zone is the is side so effect? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> is the Getting in the zone is actually the side effect for the mental state that they're in. That's the way I would interpret it. Wow. That, okay. <laughs> I definitely am learning a ton today. This is, yeah. this is wild. Yeah, that so, was awesome. Yeah, just the ability to perceive time based on movement and and processing and that that can become more efficient we've got a lot of work to do fellas yeah yes <laughs> we've written a couple of things on you know buckets of performance and how they're you know when we start to characterize an athlete there's so many things that go into it right so like to be an offensive lineman you've got to meet these physical standards um there's a lot of technical things like footwork and handwork and all of these things and uh, you know, tactical game knowledge. So just understanding situational awareness, what you're supposed to do in certain situations. And the last two buckets we've described are, you know, the cognitive bucket, just sheer processing of information, and then sort of this nebulous psychological bucket um, where a lot of this goes into. And it's oftentimes we, we, when we start thinking about, okay, these guy, this guy has the cognitive capabilities. He's physically able to do it. Um, but can't perform, right? And and so this psychological bucket, a lot of that sort of can fit into that, how they respond to failure, um, how they deal with emotional states. Um, I just feel like there's just a, a ton of work to be done to understand how, what we're calling psychology, but, you know, these emotional states and things like that affect performance. And it's not as simple, clearly, as this discussion highlights, it's not as simple as, oh, this guy's got anxiety, so he can't get it done. Uh, it sounds like there's a lot of interaction and a lot of uh, individual differences that we should be accounting for. I, I think that's absolutely right in how the people are experiencing the emotions and how they can learn to interpret those emotional states, to control those emotional states. And, you know, I, I guess I would hope that you know, for some of those individuals, it doesn't have to be forever limiting, but that there really can be ways for the person to learn, um, you know, in the moment how to change their appraisal of their emotion, how to, to some extent, regulate their emotion in whatever direction it needs to go to allow their emotional state to work better for them. Boy, that is so important because, yeah, we, we really don't characterize, I mean, we have some broad statements in the in the sports psychology world about the effects of different emotional states, but to really educate and help athletes understand what are the vulnerabilities that you're imposing on your cognitive system when you're in certain negative states and, you know, quantifying the degree of being in those states and the effect. So important for athletes. 
I bet if we ask most athletes, you know, what are the, what are the main areas of cognitive processing and decision making that are uh, impacted by negative emotional states? I bet we wouldn't have a whole lot of insight there. I don't know if if most coaches, I mean, they, they probably see it over time and kind of tacitly kind of appreciate that negative emotional states lead to some uh, decrement in performance. But for, for the athletes and the coaches out there that maybe need a little uh, cheat sheet for, you know, what are the processing areas? I, and maybe this isn't a fair question because probably everything gets impacted at some level, but what are the biggest vulnerabilities in cognitive processing associated with negative emotional states? And, and you can define that however you feel helps. But just for the athlete or the coach out there that says, look, I need to talk to my athletes about when they're in this negative state, these are the kinds of trade-offs that they're, they're imposing on their, on their decision-making skills. Would you have a, a broad kind of cheat sheet for that? Or <laughs> Yeah, well, I think what's tricky for me about that is I do think so much of it is, is this interaction between the state you're in and what information you're processing in the environment. And so I think that, you know, where it becomes a detriment is where those two things are misaligned. And I think often, often they are right. But if you're in a negative state, meaning that what you are vigilant for in the environment is not the, what you're supposed to be on the lookout for, that the thoughts that you're bringing to mind are not the ones that are relevant to the present moment. You know, I would say that you're basically overloading distraction, right? You're overloading distractions for the visual system. You're overloading distractions for your other cognitive resources. You know, we know that you're priming memories that aren't relevant. There's just a lot that is going on where a lot of the work that your brain is doing is towards some other goal that is actually irrelevant to the goal of performing your best in this moment in this game. And so I think, you know, that's where that's where people have to be aware of is when that when that negative emotion is actually at odds. Um, you know, again, I think I, I want to be re I'm reluctant to make the blanket statement because of what we talked about before, where for some athletes, that negative state can actually be advantageous to them. And I think it's that for whatever reason, for those individuals, that state actually gets them in alignment, right? That what they're visually focused on is what they need to be visually focused on and what they're thinking about is what they need to be focused on. Um, but for many people, that's not what's going to happen. Yeah. I think of the hitter who's worried about not striking out. So they're focusing on doing the very thing they don't want to do and, and the impact of that anxiety or worry, um, being overloaded with those negative thoughts and, and the impact on being distracted, not being able to lock in their, their focus, not be able to process the visual aspects of the pitch as uh, proficiently. Um, Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I, I also, I guess I wonder a bit if sometimes too, it can be recognizing what you need on game day is different than what you need in practice, right? Because oh, I know that, you know, Michael Jordan and others certainly talked about how motivating past failures were in practice, right? That it was often what gets people, you know, back out, you know, and practicing hard is not wanting to repeat that failure, right? But recognizing that those moments are probably not what you want in mind at any point when you're yeah. actually at game day, right? And so it may also be making sure that people understand that what works, you know, just what we were saying before, right? That what's working in other contexts, including mm. on practice days, is not what you want on game day. And so recognizing that different Great distinction. Um, kind of setup yeah. that you need. Are you proposing that we uh, athletes should practice 
getting in different emotional states and working on the transition in and out of them to kind of explore the space of their impact and then build better skill at, at recognizing and then transitioning into a better emotional state? I mean, I think that would be fantastic. And I mean, what I think for so many people would would be helpful is is really having to pay attention to what is my state of arousal today, whether they're just doing that via self-report, whether someone wants to be actually measuring markers of, of physiological arousal, and then having the person see how are they performing, right? And actually look at that over time, over different arousal levels to figure out um, you know, wh what is my optimized level? And then to help people understand that, you know, it may be that their arousal was the same on two days, but one day they were framing it one day and the other day they were framing it a different way. And it only works for them when it's framed one way, right? And that is quite common that, you know, people label things differently and yet physiologically they're indistinguishable. Um, and it's the labeling that is still having an influence because that's also filtering so much of the thoughts that people are having. So I think helping athletes to practice with that, but also just to have a better understanding. Um, you know, for so many of us, emotions are just these very under the hood sorts of things, um, but but they don't all have to be, right? I think that we can certainly learn to be better attuned to what we're feeling, to learn that we have more control over our ability to regulate, not that that's always going to be perfect, but we do actually have ways to change the intensity that we're feeling or to relabel what we're feeling. That is incredible. I know we're, we're talking about, you know, Scott, you know, things like play speed, you know, and a lot of athletes have never practiced or really experienced what it feels like to play super fast, whether they're making a lot of mistakes or play super slow where the game's happening in front of them really feels like same thing with emotional states here. You know, we should be practicing at different arousal levels just to know where our performance is. When I think about my own performance in basketball, right? I mean, you can be lights out in practice. And then when the game comes, you're, you know, three feet long on the jumper. And it's like, okay, well, I haven't really practiced in this emotional state. I've practiced feeling like I'm Michael Jordan, which is probably why my career ended in ninth grade. But there's a lot of like you know, room to dig into this kind of stuff and just thinking about, okay, what are the tools to use to measure these kinds of emotional states and how we operate? I mean, it, 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 this itself could move sports performance, particularly at the individual level, significantly. Think about all the athletes who really have capped their level of performance because of emotional states, you know, and not being able to regulate it or not be able to perform because they're paralyzed. Um, and, and really digging into this, I really feel like, especially at that youth level, the high school athlete can make a huge difference. Yeah. We hear that all the time. Checked all the boxes, physically gifted, technically gifted, tactically sophisticated, cognitively loaded up, but the emotional dysregulation pulled the rug out from their being successful as an athlete. And if we can start getting younger players to like we are with cognition, pay attention to this dimension of performance and start training it and developing it and being aware of it and being mindful of those effects. A huge impact on on the success of, of young athletes and, you know, the established athletes. I, I think there too, it's so important to recognize how much changes about emotion processing and emotion regulation over those adolescents into young adult years. And so I could also imagine that that's a particularly challenging time because there may be strategies that the athlete learned 
that five years ago were working and now actually yeah. that's not their optimal, you know, affective state anymore or the emotion regulation takes more work or, you know, whatever it might be. And so I think really taking seriously to what's happening over that span of development in terms of emotion processing, as well as everything else is, is really essential. Bia, before we get into our last segment, is there something that you're working on in your lab right now that, that you'd like to share with us? So we're really interested in some of the different ways that positive and negative emotions influence the way that we process information and also how that changes um, more in the later part of the lifespan. So as individuals progress from young adulthood through older age. Um, but one of the things that I think is most relevant to the conversation that we're having now is really this difference in kind of the scope of attention that individuals are able to have when experiencing a positive emotion versus a negative emotion. Um, so we've been very interested in why it is that when we're in a good mood, we actually tend to have a little bit broader of a scope of attention. We process things a little bit more globally and heuristically. And when we're in a negative mood, our attention is a little bit more narrowed. Um, and so we've been trying to really understand what it is that's different about the connections between the amygdala and the visual system that gives us more um, sensory specificity for negative information um, and a little bit more kind of conceptual, higher level processing for positive information. Um, and we think we've identified some interestingly different kind of amygdala pathways that are activated um, when we're in a negative emotional state versus a positive one. Yeah, there may be sports that would benefit from playing in the negative state and other sports <laughs> and positions <laughs> playing in a board. That is so fascinating. So cool. Yes. So uh, now we'll move on to the three random and funny questions. I have two for you, and then I'm going to let Brandon in with the last one. Um, I know you're from Boston. Do you have a prediction on the Patriots and Bill Belichick, right? Long tenured career. He's been a great GM and head coach. Do you have a prediction for us? <laughs> I, I, I don't think we'll be seeing much more of Bill Belichick. That wow. Would be my, that would okay. Be my prediction. All right. Um, do you have a personal sports story that you'd like to share? Well, on that note, I just actually wanted to say that I actually grew up in Kansas City. And so I have loved how now the whole world are oh. Chiefs fans due to, to Taylor Swift, of all things. So that's been great. <laughs> that's, is, so is that, is that your favorite memory? Is the Taylor Swift effect on sports? Is that... <laughs> My favorite memory is actually attending a Chiefs game as, as a child, but, but so tied in in that way. Very cool. Very <laughs> cool. I would love to hear, are there any sports specific emotional times you have lived through or you resided in the Boston area during quite a remarkable time for a number of different sports? Is there an emotional memory that really sits with you? Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly the most fun scientific study I ever did was when I was in Dan Schachter's lab. Um, and we did that study of the 2004 playoffs uh, series between the Red Sox and, and the Yankees. Um, but actually, for me, I have some pretty amazing personal memories tied up in that because it was like all of Boston was going crazy celebrating. And I was sitting at my computer <laughs> writing up a memory survey thinking like I am a very unique type of person. <laughs> this is the way that I want to celebrate this win. Um, but it's it's been it's been amazing. My my regret was that, um, you know, a few years later, the Patriots actually lost the Super Bowl. And had I anticipated that that would have happened, I would have been writing another uh, survey to look at how Red Sox fans did with that. So that would have been nice to have the same uh, geographical area as the, as the control sample for the losing team. 
Dr. Kensiker, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about emotional regulation, anxiety, how it affects sports cognition and performance at large. Uh, I, I learned a ton today and I, I can't wait to dive into this more. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. Thanks for listening to the S2 Cognition Podcast. If you like the content we are putting out, please subscribe with that plus sign at the top of your app, leave a review about the episode, and share it with a friend. Follow us on Twitter at S2 Cognition or Instagram at S2.Cognition. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, please visit our website at www.s2cognition.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening to the S2 Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, signing off for now. We'll talk to you guys soon.